even in that sinful family and its descendants, you can see glimpses of God's common grace. And one of those is that God gave even fallen man the gift of music. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is your view of Christian music, friend? Is it built on the Word of God? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue in Tom's series titled Recovering a Lost Legacy. We're examining the church's historic legacies, foundational elements, and how many of those time-tested practices are losing traction or disappearing entirely today. That includes music. We live in an age where Christian music is more widely produced and accessible than ever before. But sadly, a biblical philosophy of music has been lost in many churches. It's critical to go back to the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, to see and learn the pattern taught there not only for your Sunday morning corporate worship, but also for your individual private worship. Let's consider the matter carefully with Tom Pennington as he begins today's lesson right now on The Word Unleashed. Webster defines a legacy as something that's been handed down from the past. Like when the Library of Alexandria was destroyed in 48 BC, the world lost thousands of years of human knowledge. The same thing has happened in the larger Christian church. Over the last 150 years or so, the Christian church has lost its rich legacy of knowledge and practice. As I mentioned last week, in some cases that's because of carelessness and neglect, but sadly in other cases it's an intentional abandonment of the legacy, the biblical legacy that has been received in exchange for some new idea, some new philosophy, some new approach. Many of you have come from churches here to Countryside where some or much of the Christian church's legacy has been lost. And so, as the elders and I discussed it, we felt it was important for me to address some of the basic elements of the church's legacy that have been largely lost in the contemporary evangelical church. I want us to look at them in order to develop a deeper and more profound appreciation for that legacy, but also to understand its biblical foundations, the biblical foundations of these concepts so that we treasure them, we defend them, we benefit from them, and we pass them on to the next generation. Last week, we looked at the legacy of expository preaching. Today and the next couple of weeks, I want us to focus on the recovery of the legacy of music in worship. Wherever God's people are, they will sing. It's part of who we are. It's our spiritual DNA. It's the result of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm going to take today, Lord willing, and the next two Sundays to deal with this issue of music. Now, let me hasten to say that's not because music is some sort of a problem here at Countryside. By God's grace, we enjoy unusual unity on this issue, 
And by God's amazing and gracious providence, we also happen to have the best music director that there is. I mean that, yes. Seth really does a phenomenal job of choosing the best music from the past and today, leading us, leading the choir, leading the other vocalists, the musicians in music and worship, so that it's worship and not a performance. But although music is not a problem here, there are a couple of reasons that I want to spend significant time on this issue. Let me tell you what they are. First of all, many Christians have an unbiblical philosophy of music. It may be because they belong to churches where the legacy of biblical music and worship was entirely lost, or frankly, even those who belong to good churches, maybe the way that you think about God's gift of music has been shaped not by the Bible, but by the culture or by your own likes and preferences and ideas. And so it's important that we address it because so many Christians are so wrong when it comes to their understanding of music. A second reason I want to focus on this is because music is a crucial part of both our personal and our corporate worship of the God we love and serve. God created music, and its ultimate purpose is to bring Him glory. Music was around before the universe was around, and it will exist into eternity as a channel for the worship of God. So I want us to study what Scripture teaches about music. Specifically, we're going to focus on music in worship. And as we look at what the Scripture teaches, we're going to gain several important insights into this issue of music in worship. That's where we're going today and the next couple of weeks. So let's look together at the first insight. I want to begin with a biblical critique of today's music in worship. Now, based on what we're going to learn from Scripture, and I already know where we're going, there are several serious problems with the contemporary church's worship music. I'm just going to give you a list for now, but we'll address them biblically as the next couple of weeks unfold. So let me just give you the problem with where we are when the Scripture informs our understanding of worship and music. Here are some serious problems. Number one, Music has become extremely divisive in the church. Obviously, this was never God's intention. He hates those who cause division. He hates division in His church. This happens between individual members in a local church. This division over music really happens over generational differences in the church. That's why some churches try to solve that by having a traditional service and a contemporary service. That doesn't solve the problem. It only further divides God's people. Between the members of the church and the church's leadership at times, this becomes an issue of conflict, and certainly between larger groups in evangelical Christianity. So it's become extremely divisive. That's a problem. The Bible does not in any way sanction division for division's sake, particularly when it comes to issues of taste. Obviously, if it's truth, and we'll talk about that, that's a different issue. A second biblical critique of music and worship is it often has poor quality poetry or music. Now, we don't experience that here because Seth makes very good choices, but 
If you've listened to the radio or you've been in other churches, you know that often there is really poor quality poetry or poor quality music. Number three, it often has weak or errant lyrics. Sometimes there's just nothing really to sing. I remember visiting a church one time, and my wife and I were there with some others, and we were trying to sing and participate in the worship, but literally for five minutes we sang one lyric line, it's a beautiful, wonderful day. Now, I thought it was a beautiful, wonderful day, and even though they didn't say in the song that it was because of God, I knew that God had made it a beautiful, wonderful day because He's creator, because He's good. He showers us daily with good things. And so for the first minute, I was able to participate in this song. But after a minute, I had pretty much wrung all of the truth I could wring out of It's a Beautiful, Wonderful Day. And often, sadly, that's the way songs are. Other times, they're errant lyrics. They're simply biblically wrong. Someone was telling me between the services about a, a song they sang this, this summer at a camp that said something like, and I don't, I don't, I'm getting the lyric wrong, line wrong, I'm sure, but it was something like, you know, God, you're happy to take me and let me live however I want. It's like, well, no, that wouldn't be true. Number four, music is often shaped by churches and movements with bad theology. For an example, Bethel Church in Redding, California is a hotbed not only of charismatic theology, but even heretical ideas. Sadly, Bethel Church has produced many of today's top Christian songs. In fact, this week I looked at the, the list of songs that are sung most frequently in churches in America, and they produced a number of those songs. And, and evangelical churches that would reject the theology that's taught there, embrace it through their music. Number five, it's often aimed primarily at the emotions rather than the mind. It's about whipping people up. It's about creating an experience with, you know, smoke and lights and, and all that's involved with whipping up people emotionally. Now, this isn't new, by the way. I grew up in an old Southern Baptist church where they did it with eight verses of Just As I Am after the, after the sermon. Number six, it's often a performance rather than God-directed worship. And we're going to talk about styles of worship music in the coming couple of weeks, but understand this, regardless of the style, it can be done in a way that's worship and it can be done in a way that's performance. God doesn't want a performance on the stage. He wants worship directed to Him. Amen. Number seven, Professing Christians often don't sing or sing out. Now, let me just tell you, this is a pet peeve of mine. Prepare yourself. You're going to hear about this several times. If God is worthy of our worship, then He's worthy of our worship. Christians need to sing. Number eight, it is intentionally, that is worship music, focused on one style, one kind of sound, or one era of music. You know, you go to some churches and it's clear the music director grew up in the 60s because that's the kind of music you, ha you hear, or the 80s, or whatever it is, or one particular approach to music. We're going to see that that's not a biblical model. There is a biblical model and that's not it. As we will discover today and the next couple of weeks, the Bible addresses every single one of those serious problems with today's 
music in worship. But I want us to begin our study of what the Bible teaches about this crucial issue by considering a biblical history of music. So the second insight I want you to see here is a biblical history of music. Music is such an incredible gift. Martin Luther, the reformer, not only defended sola scriptura and sola fide, but he also revolutionized the role of music in worship. And listen to what he wrote. I love this quote. The riches of music are so excellent and so precious that words fail me whenever I attempt to discuss and describe them. In summa, next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. This precious gift has been given to man alone that he might thereby remind himself that God has created man for the express purpose of praising and extolling God, end quote. That's what music reminds us of. That is exactly, by the way, what the Scripture teaches. But we need to get that in our minds. So, so let's start with the big picture about the place and priority that Scripture has given to music. Now, the Bible contains more than 600 references to music. We obviously aren't going to exhaust them, or I would exhaust you. But let's, let's start at the beginning. Let's start with music in the Old Testament. What was it like there? Well, first of all, understand this, that music existed before the creation of the universe. It existed before the creation of man. Music has its origin in God. Now, there are two possibilities. It's possible that God created music as He created all other things before He created the universe. That's one possibility. The second possibility, and I lean here, is since Scripture says that God Himself sings, as we will see, it's possible that music has always existed as an expression of the eternal mind of God. Regardless, we know that music was the spontaneous reaction of those powerful, intelligent beings that the Bible calls angels. It was their reaction to God and to His creation of the universe. Turn with me to the book of Job. Job 38, you remember God begins to speak in Job 38 and, and confront Job's understanding of His sovereignty and suffering, and, and He says this, in Job 38.1, Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. He's basically saying, look, Job, you think you understand why your circumstances should be different. Well, then let's talk about how much knowledge and power you really have. Were you there when I created, did you have anything to do with that? Verse 5, <clears throat> who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Now notice verse 7. Remember, he's talking about the creation. And he says, at the creation, and God was there obviously to know, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, that, that expression, the sons of God, has already occurred in the book of Job. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, it refers to the angelic beings around the throne of God. 
And so what God is saying here is when I created the universe, when I created the earth, the angels sang together and shouted for joy. Wouldn't you have loved to heard that song? So music was part of the expression of the angels' worship of God when he made the universe. But it wasn't long until music invaded human history as well. Moses describes the beginning of human music in the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 4, you have a description of the origin of human society that followed the fall of man. Moses describes there two distinct societies, two distinct lines. One was the godly line of Seth, the other the ungodly line of Cain. And out of Cain's family came secular society. Yet even in that sinful family and its descendants, you can see glimpses of God's common grace. And one of those is that God gave even fallen man the gift of music. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 21. In the previous verse was talking about Jabal, and then it says in verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. Those of you who like to name your kids alike, you stand in a long tradition. <laughs> Genesis 4. His, brother na- his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. In other words, Jubal is the human father of those who play the instruments and accompany music. One of Cain's descendants, as an expression of God's common grace to man, was the one who gave life to instrumentation. But music was also part of the godly line as well. Although there's no direct mention of music sung in the praise of God in the book of Genesis, the events of the book of Job occur during the same time period. And there we learn that the godly were singing about God. Turn to Job chapter 36. Job 36, verse 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed him his way, and who has said, you have done wrong? Verse 24, remember that you should exalt God's work of which men have sung. So even early on in human history, the godly line, the line of Seth, was praising God in song. This became a normal part of the worship of God's people. When you come to the time of Moses, music begins to play a crucial role in the corporate worship of God's people. In Exodus chapter 15, you have the song of Moses sung by Israel commemorating God's great deliverance at the Red Sea. There's a fascinating passage I wish I had time to take you to in Deuteronomy 31 where you have God commanding the people to memorize the song of Moses. He's to teach it to the people. They're to learn it and sing it so that they remember the truth of what God has said. Even during the most difficult period of the Old Testament, the time of the judges, when there was no king in Israel, but everyone did that which was right in his own eyes, there was music that was addressed to God. In Judges chapter 5, you have Deborah's song of praise. In 1 Samuel 2, you have Hannah's song of praise about the birth of Samuel. But then you come after the judges to the richest 
time of Old Testament hymnody and songs of worship, and that's the period of the monarchy, specifically the time of David and Solomon. We are in, even introduced to David in 1 Samuel 16, 18 in this way. One of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, this is David, who is a skillful musician. The very first thing he thought of when he thought of David was he is a skilled musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and Yahweh is with him. As you know, David was the great psalmist of Israel and wrote many of the psalms that are in our Psalter. But when David became king, he also identified 4,000 Levites who were responsible for music at the tabernacle. In a later generation, that same group became responsible for the music and the worship at the temple. David himself wrote 74 of the Psalms that are in the collection of the Psalter that we have, most of them in books, books one and two of the five books of Psalms. His son Solomon wrote a thousand songs according to 1 Kings 4, but only two of his psalms are recorded in the Psalter, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. So this was the, the great high point for songwriting in the worship of the Old Testament. But the same thread of spiritual songs can be traced throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Scholars believe that Ezra the scribe wrote a number of the 48 anonymous psalms that are in the book of Psalms. Of course, there were other, altars, other authors, rather, and it's likely that the book of Psalms was completed in its current form under the direction of Ezra in that same time frame. So hundreds of years of songwriting and song singing corporately among the people of God. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you find that music and worship was constantly present in the life of our Lord, and in several different ways. I don't know if you've thought about this, but there was obviously music at all of the feasts of Israel. There were songs that were sung at the feasts. We have a, an inspired record of one of those. You remember after the Passover celebration in Matthew 26, 30, it says, after singing a hymn, that is Jesus and the eleven, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And there were other songs connected to each of the feasts of Israel. In addition, there were songs of ascent that the pilgrims going to those feasts sang on the way and as they even entered the temple. Daily, there was music at the temple, morning and evening, accompanied by choirs and instruments. And every single Saturday of Jesus' life, think about this, every Sabbath, Jesus attended the synagogue, and part of the synagogue worship was singing and music. But Jesus was even more engaged in music than that, not just once a week. Since the Old Testament commands personal and private singing to God, and since our Lord perfectly obeyed God and kept all of His commands, we know that music was a daily part of our Lord's life. Jesus sang, and He sang all the time.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, Recovering a Lost Legacy. Tom will have part four for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, to have a biblical philosophy of music means to have an understanding of the origin of music itself, one that we as believers may not be aware of. Isn't that right? You know, Bill, that's absolutely right. In fact, I think most Christians don't realize, or at least don't think often about the fact that music is a gift of God. In fact, it's, it's possible that music existed before the creation of the universe, meaning that music itself has its origin in the person of God. But what's crystal clear is as you read through the scripture, you'll find that the angels, God's people, have always consistently used music and singing as a means to offer praise and worship to God. That's true from Genesis to Revelation. And it's why music has to matter not only to an individual believer, but to how music is used in the context of the church as well. Thanks, Tom. And friend, does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.